join me in Haggai, the end of Haggai 2, verses 20 to 23. And when you get there, I want you to mark that in your Bible. And then I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah 22. So we're going to start this evening, Jeremiah 22. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice this evening that the truth is marching on. That nothing has ever stayed your hand or halted your plans. That over thousands of years, still today, your promises stand. For you are a faithful God. Lord, I pray that even this evening as we look at this passage, a a passage that draws our minds forward, even to the great day of the Lord, that pulls at our heartstrings, our longing for the coming of Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom, May we even in these truths see your faithfulness, that you are a God who will do what you have said. You will keep your word. Circumstances cannot thwart your plans, for you are God Almighty. So Lord, may you be glorified this evening. In these passages, may your name be lifted high. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The other day, and this is not an endorsement of this movie. You always have to say that when you, when you use a reference to a movie. But the other day, I was watching a night at the museum, one of the night at the museum movies. And when it started, I wasn't quite sure that I had chosen the right movie. Because if you're familiar with Night at the Museum, they all take place in our present day, in the universe that it is in. Um, but this movie started way back as some people were, were doing archaeology in Egypt in like the 1800s or something. And at first it threw me off, and yet throughout the course of the movie I came to see that that scene a hundred years ago set the context that played an important part in the movie later on. And I say that because we're going to start in Jeremiah 22 which is back before Israel's captivity. So though our minds are engaged in Haggai, we've been working our way through this with the people restored from captivity, the remnant who's returned, the rebuilding Jerusalem, we're going to start by jumping back in our minds to before the captivity. In Jerusalem, there's important context that is laid here for us. There is a tension that without the context of Jeremiah 22 robs Haggai 2 of some of its power and encouragement. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 22. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah. 
who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the kings of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, you surely I will make you a desert an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapon, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt with this great city? And they will answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Weep not for him who is dead, nor grieve for him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away. For he shall return no more to see his native land. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who, resigned in, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, and who went away from this place. He shall return here no more, but in the place where they have carried him captive, there shall he die, and he shall never see this land again. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper room by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think that you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out for Abiram, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth, and you have not obeyed my voice. The wind shall shepherd all your shepherds, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Then you will be ashamed and confounded because of all your evil, O inhabitant of Lebanon." Nested among the cedars, how you will be pitied when pains come upon you, pain as of a woman in labor. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you 
and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land and they, that they do not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now I'm sure as I read that, you're wondering why in the world did we start in this random chapter, chapter in the middle of Jeremiah? This chapter brings a great tension, a great question to the forefront of our minds. If you're paying attention, and that question is, is God faithful? You see, here's the problem in Jeremiah 22. The people have been unfaithful. And God has declared that because of their unfaithfulness, they will be cast into exile The question remains, what about all the promises that God has made to his people? What about this land that he has promised? What about his promises to David? This chapter raises a question there. Because you see, Jehoiakim, or Coniah, as he's called in this chapter, He is the king who's on the throne, who's from the line of David, and yet there is a curse cast upon him in this chapter that says that he shall be childless. Not literally childless, he has children, but childless in the sense of he shall have no one to reign after him. None of his sons will sit on the throne, thus ending the line of David. In fact, verse 30, thus says the Lord, write this down, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed. None of his present offspring, none of his children shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Thus, ending the line of David. In fact, verse 24, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those. So the question in Jeremiah 22, and a question that that lingers throughout the exile, is has God abandoned his promise? There's been a curse laid on the line of David. This line to whom this great promise has been given. There is a promise in Jeremiah 23 that a branch will come from the line of David. Somewhere along the line, something will happen. And yet, there's a great tension here at the end of Jeremiah 22. What is God doing? It's with that context that we come then to Haggai 2. And here in this chapter, I invite you to turn over there, Haggai chapter 2. Here in this chapter, 
There's two things that we see. We see God all-powerful and we see God ever-faithful. In verses 20 to 22, we see, or that was the setting, Jeremiah 22. In verses 20 to 22, we see God all-powerful. You see here, the word of the Lord comes again to Haggai, verse 20, on the 24th day of the month. Interestingly enough, this is the exact same day as the fourth prophecy that Haggai brings in chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. This takes place on the very same day, December 18th, 520 B.C. And Haggai speaks once again. The word of the Lord came by Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel. Governor of Judah. Here in verses 21 to 22, the word of the Lord, as he speaks through Haggai, begins with a bang. You see, what is pictured here in these verses is the day of the Lord. Something that is foretold all throughout the prophets that the Lord is coming and with him comes judgment. This day of the Lord precedes then the coming kingdom. It has already been referenced in Haggai 2 verses 6 to 9. A very similar passage to the one that we are in. Thus says the Lord of hosts once more in a little while. I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake the nations. And they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory. You remember that, that passage earlier in Haggai. The Lord is encouraging his disillusioned people. And he says don't worry. I will fill this temple with glory. This temple is not dependent on you. It's dependent on me. I am coming again, and I will fill it in glory, with glory. Here he uses some of that same language. I will shake the heavens and the earth. But here, what is in view is not God's coming comfort. God's coming to fill this temple with his glory. What is in view is his coming judgment. And like I said, it begins with a bang. You see, he goes on to talk about overthrowing kingdoms and nations. But the way that he brings this, the way that he unfolds it here in verses 21 and 22, he doesn't start building then to a crescendo. He doesn't begin by saying, I'm coming, and I will conquer cities, and I will conquer nations, and I will overthrow kings, and ultimately, I will shake the whole earth. Building slowly to a crescendo. No, right from the very beginning, it begins with a bang. It begins at the crescendo. If you are not on my side, there is no hope. He snuffs out all hope from the very beginning. I will shake the heavens and the earth. The very heavens and the earth are subject to his will. I will shake them, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots, and those who ride in them, the horses and the riders, shall come down. Even the most advanced, powerful military unit in the day is as nothing against Israel's God. Just like with Pharaoh as he's chasing them, 
chasing the Israelites in the Exodus and they're crossing the Red Sea. Those chariots are nothing. They might be the greatest army in the land, but against God, they are as nothing. Like that, they are swept away. If this God can shake the heaven and the earth, then what hope do the kingdoms of earth have in opposing him? And the answer from the very beginning is none. This is not even a battle. They stand no chance. The picture here is one of complete devastation. In fact, all the way down at the end of verse 22, the horse and his rider shall come down every one by the sword of his brother. There is such fear and chaos and the power of God that they turn on each other in sheer panic. The picture of verses 21 and 22 is of God all-powerful. There is no one who stands as a threat against this God. This is the great day of the Lord. He is coming, and with him comes judgment, and there is nothing and no one that can stop it. The picture here is shocking. It is meant to grab your attention. It is meant to shock you. Then we come to verse 23. Here we see God all-powerful. The one who even heaven and earth are subject to his will. And in verse 23 we see God ever faithful. In that day it begins. In that day in which I shake the heavens and the earth. In that day in which I overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. In that day. I am coming and I will triumph, says the Lord of hosts. Again, that name of God that has shown up time and time again in the book of Haggai. The Lord of hosts. The eternal, self-existent God who commands the armies of heaven. God Almighty. I will take you. Zerubbabel, my servant. That's an interesting phrase there, my servant. You see, the phrase my servant is a distinctively Davidic and messianic title. We see that in passages like 2 Samuel 3, 18, 1 Kings eleven thirty four, 34, Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9, Isaiah 49, verses 5 to 6. Ezekiel 37, 24, and 25, Ezekiel 34, 23 to 24, and Psalm 89, 3. Each one of these passages, as this title shows up, it references either David himself or some ideal Davidic king. This is a statement about Zerubbabel. You are my servant. And here's an interesting. Thing, the son of Shiltiel. 
He's been referenced by that name, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, throughout the book of Haggai. But here's where context matters. Because Shealtiel is one of those sons of Jehoiakim or Kenoya who was cursed from sitting on the throne. Zerubbabel is in the line of David. And note this next phrase. Zerubbabel, my servant, again, a Davidic title, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, I will make you like a signet ring. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember back in Jeremiah 22, verse 24? As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, I would tear you off and throw you away. And yet here we are two generations later. And his grandson, God comes and says, I will make you like a signet ring. What is a signet ring? A signet ring is a ring that a king would wear showing royal authority. Often it would have a royal seal on it. That as the king sends out a letter or a decree... He would press that ring into the wax, showing his seal, giving, showing his authority. It is a sign of God's favor and faithfulness. You are like my signet ring. You are the one that exercises the authority that I give. It is proof of God's favor and faithfulness. You see, brothers and sisters, this is why I started back in Jeremiah. This is why this passage is so significant in Scripture. Because here, Zerubbabel restores and reestablishes the Davidic line. That line once broken by God's curse of Zerubbabel's grandfather, who was so unfaithful. That line that was interrupted by the exile. God has not forgotten his promise. God has not abandoned his people. The line of David is restored and the branch of David is coming. This is a passage that is full of restored hope. God will keep his promise. He did not abandon us despite Coniah's sin. Despite the people's unfaithfulness. God has kept his word. I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. You are mine. I find it interesting that this promise here comes on the same day, December 18th, 520 B.C., as his previous promise. You might remember a few weeks ago as we were in Haggai 2 verses 10 to 19 as he comes and he reassures the Lord comes and reassures the people of his blessing. It starts out without using the title of my people but by the end of that 
He's using it. You are my people. I will bless you. And on that same day, not only are you still my people, but I am still faithful to my word. The Lord here reestablishes the Davidic line. God's promises still stand. Brothers and sisters, as we sit here this evening, we know who this branch from the line of David is. We know ultimately who the ultimate Davidic king is. It is Jesus Christ. We know who the king is. And we know what the king will do. And as we sit here this evening, we are waiting for the king's return. And here's where we bring the whole book together. Brothers and sisters, as we wait for the king's return, knowing that he is coming, for he's a faithful God who has promised that he is coming, let us wait well. Let us not build up for ourselves treasures on earth. Let us not lose our priorities and worry about paneling our houses and making our churches look good. All the while losing focus on what really matters. Brothers and sisters, let us as a church, let us lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Let us have the right priorities and the appropriate urgency because our God is faithful and every single one of his promises will be fulfilled. He is coming again. Let that motivate you to faithfulness. He is a God who keeps his word. He is God all-powerful. And he is God ever-faithful. As we transition to the communion table in just a second, we're going to sing the song, Hallelujah, What a Savior. One appropriate song to sing in the context of this passage, knowing who is the fulfillment of this passage ultimately. It is Jesus Christ. He is the one who died for our sins. He is the one who rose again victorious. He is the true king who is coming again to set up his kingdom. And so even as we meditate this evening on the faithfulness of God, let us respond by rejoicing in some of the fulfillment of that faithfulness in the coming of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a savior. Hallelujah. Our God is faithful and he has done and will do all that he has promised. Let's stand together and let's sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior.